Hi, everybody, and welcome to the weekly message for The Table. The Table is a church in Davenport, Iowa, where people are moving from greed toward generosity, from violence toward peacemaking, from isolation toward neighborliness, and from fear toward faith. I'm Pastor Rob Leverage, and it is good to be with you on this beautiful Sunday afternoon. Already this morning, I got a lot to celebrate. Uh, I got to uh, participate in the baptism of a young person this morning. I got to baptize somebody. Always, It's always a highlight of my... Uh, of my year, all the baptisms I get to participate and share in. Um, and every time I baptize somebody, you know, you spend time thinking about the fundamentals. You think about the basics and the, the core central truths of the Christian faith. So our message today is really going to focus on Christian identity and what does it mean uh, to be a Christian. And so we're going to uh, make our way into that topic by opening our ears and opening our hearts to a very brief scripture, but probably one of the more important scriptures in the entire Bible. So this comes from Matthew chapter 22, and let's give a good listen. One of them, a one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Jesus replied, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Picture a postage stamp. Yep, get get a postage stamp in your mind. I recently learned <laughs> all sorts of stuff about the very high standards that the Postal Service has for when they're going to create a new stamp. Okay, here we go, high standards. Every stamp that the U.S. Postal Service makes must be a celebration. Okay, The image on the stamp must be beautiful, but it, it really must be uplifting. It needs to spotlight something good about the history and the culture of the United States, okay? That is a non-negotiable. Also, stamps are G-rated. G-rated, folks, okay? <laughs> now you're thinking, uh, yeah, what, what, uh, is this a big fight argument that people have to have? Well, you know, um, there's no violent imagery that's allowed on a stamp. Okay, that's a good standard to have, um, but also nothing scandalous. Well, what is scandalous? Here's an example. Um, there's a movie star named Betty Davis. She was very famous uh, in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, um, and she is on a U.S. postage stamp, and they used an old photo of, of Betty Davis for the stamp, but in that old photo, she was holding a cigarette. <laughs> well, that just won't do for a postage stamp. So they cut the cigarette out of the photo for the stamp. And so now the Betty Davis stamp is a little funny because she is holding her hand in a very awkward pose because she's definitely holding a cigarette, uh, but the cigarette is not there. Okay, so these are the standards. Uh, but folks, there is one aspect of stamp design that may 
be the most important thing, okay? The thing that a stamp has got to have, and that is the serpentine perf. The serpentine perf, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, uh, you're picturing the stamp in your mind, right? Right? It's a, it's a rectangle, a stamp is a rectangle, and it's got a picture, right? But the edge of the stamp, right? The edge of the rectangle, is it a straight, smooth edge? No, no, no. The edges of a stamp must be jagged, right? <laughs> that is necessary for a stamp. Okay, I don't know if you recall this, but for about the first 17,000 years of the Postal Service, stamps came in sheets, and they were perforated. They had dry glue on the back of them, and you had to tear off an individual stamp and lick it and then stick it on an envelope. Okay, that's, that's how it was done. But a few years ago, 20 years ago, I'm not actually sure when this happened, they changed the way that postage stamps were produced, and now you just peel the stamp off of wax paper. It's already sticky. You don't lick it. You don't have to tear anything. Um, so there is no need for perforation. Uh, the jagged edge, it does not serve any purpose, right? Except it serves probably the most important purpose, which is that if a stamp had a smooth, straight edge, it just wouldn't seem like a stamp, right? It would seem like a sticker. <laughs> And the Postal Service is not in the sticker business. They do stamps. And you want your stamp to seem like a stamp. And a stamp has to have the serpentine perf, friends. Okay. Okay. Certain things are essential for a stamp to be a stamp. Certain things are essential for a tree to be a tree. Right? What do you have? A tree has to have leaves, right? Well, wait a second. What about needles? Some trees have needles. Okay, but, but there are certain things that are necessary in order to call a thing a tree, right? If I ask you, what makes a chair a chair? Well, you would probably think of a lot of things, but you might think of some things that could be part of a chair or not, like legs, right? Chairs have to have legs. Well, wait a second. Do chairs have to have legs? I guess you could have a chair without legs, right? So some things are common but not essential. But there must be some features that if it ain't got it, it ain't a chair, right? So what makes a restaurant a restaurant? What makes a hero a hero? What makes a friend a friend? What things are essential for this identity or that one? Mm -hmm. What makes a Christian a Christian? There are things that we associate with Christians, right? Going to church, reading the Bible, putting one of those fish decals, you know, on your car. Um, what is that? What makes a Christian a Christian? Garrison Keillor once said that going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage makes you a Buick. I thought that's a good line. Um, but it is, it is a pretty basic question. And, you know, 
on one level, you could say it's really, really simple to answer this question. What makes a Christian a Christian? Because we do have these um, experiences, right? These very important moments in life that we can sometimes point to. Be like, well, that that is the thing that I look to as sort of the beginning of my identity as a Christian. You were baptized, right? If you were baptized, <laughs> you can say, look, I was baptized. But not only that, people have, um, many churches have a practice of confirmation for young people. So to be able to say, I was confirmed in church, right? That is how, in, in a way, in part at least, how I know, you know, this is my faith. I, this, I'm a Christian. Um, but even if you're not involved in a, in a very formal church context, a lot of people have a, salva- a salvation experience in which they said an important prayer or there was a moment when they felt the Spirit of God come into their life, right? And so you can point to that and say, that is how I know that I am a Christian. And I think all of those things are very, very important and they're, they're beautiful. But I still think it's important to really chew on this question, really dig in and, and get down to it. What makes a Christian a Christian? And I, and I think that for a couple of reasons. Um, the first is that, you know, even if we have these, you know, touchstone moments in our lives, like the time, you know, a while back when you were baptized, um, a lot of us have experiences where we, we reach a point where we feel kind of distant and disconnected from whatever that critically important experience was back then, right? We say, you know, I had that great experience then, but now I'm kind of dealing with all my stuff and living life, and, and, and I, I may wonder, is there a way that I can deepen my connection and my sense of who I am in this faith? And then the other reason uh, that comes to my mind immediately, it, it's kind of unfortunate, but the fact is a lot of Christ, Christians have a really bad uh, habit <laughs> of evaluating and dismissing each other's faith. Um, there's a lot of a lot of Christians who really want to uh, pass judgment or cast aspersions on some other Christians' uh, sense of their own faith, right? And and, be, and they set criteria that says, you know, uh, you know, if you don't meet this criteria, you're not really a Christian, right? And so, since that is a reality of the world in which we live, I think it is important for us to, to ask that question. Well, what does it mean for a Christian to be a Christian? What things are essential? Okay? So now, to, to really dig into this, I'm going to throw out a couple of big words that I'm going to talk about a lot. These are theological seminary words. They're, they're kind of clunky and big, and I'm sorry about that. I'll try not to be too pretentious uh, in throwing these around. But two words, okay? Two words, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy. If we're going to ask this question, what makes a Christian a Christian? What is essential? Then these two words will be helpful for us to think about. So the first one is orthodoxy. And orthodoxy literally means correct belief. Yeah, correct belief. Some churches are called orthodox. Orthodox churches. <laughs> I have yet to see a sign for an unorthodox church, but if I ever do, boy, I'm going to go in there and check that church out. Um, <laughs> orthodoxy is correct belief. 
And if there is correct belief in religion, really there's correct belief in every area of life. Medicine, sports, journalism, right? Every sort of field of, of study or thought has a normalized traditional approach to things, the accepted wisdom, the correct belief about how things are, how things are supposed to happen, and so on. And for many people, Christianity simply comes down to having the right beliefs. It's all about the orthodoxy, right? And you will be evaluated by your neighbor, you know, based on your beliefs. If you believe the wrong thing, or if you don't believe the right thing, you know, there are people who will say, you are not a Christian. Because the most important thing to them is orthodoxy. Yes. All right. So if the most important thing is having the correct beliefs, well, what are those beliefs? <laughs> you know, um, what beliefs are essential for a Christian? And, you know, it seems like you could start listing them off fairly easily. But there is a lot of stuff that people emphasize. Let's start with belief in God. Okay, that sounds like a pretty big one. Let's uh, let's start there. And then you start talking about the belief in Jesus as God's son, believing that he rose from the dead, believing in the Trinity. And, and it's pretty easy to start naming some pretty big things. But, you know, as you think about it, people have bazillions of things that they believe, right? About very, very specific things. And it is, you know, kind of hard to know how long the list of essential beliefs is supposed to be. Like, where exactly is the line <laughs> between what is essential and what is not essential to believe? So there's beliefs about the Bible. There's beliefs about heaven and hell. Beliefs about the devil and angels. Beliefs about women and men. There's a lot of stuff that people believe. And what is essential amongst all those things, okay? So consider uh, as an example, um, this is just one, uh, you could come up with a million examples, but I was thinking this past week about the Nicene Creed. I don't know if you know about the Nicene Creed or if you've ever read it, or if you, you may have it memorized, you may have said it over and over again in church. The Nicene Creed is a statement of belief, and it was written 1800 years ago, um, it has been in use by churches all throughout history since then to this day. There are millions of people in the world who say the Nicene Creed every single Sunday, right? And so it's a very, very important um, foundational statement of belief. And there's a section in this creed that is about Jesus. And it says as follows. Here it goes. Here we go. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial of one being with the Father. Whoo! Now that's some very churchy language right there. <laughs> okay, and you can spend years of your life studying what that really means, What I, everything I just said. Um, you can spend a long time just learning the history of how the language in this creed 
came to be. But let me give a very like a two like a ten second oversimplification. Okay, back in the year around the year three hundred, there was a really really big fight going on. Okay, and it was a fight between Christians over this question. Here's the question. Ready? If Jesus is the Son of God, does that mean that Jesus was created by God? And he thus has a special status as the Lord of creation? Or, if Jesus is the Son of God, does that mean that Jesus is eternal in the way that God is eternal, with no beginning and no end? All right, that's the question. And that was the thing people were arguing about. Now, as you listen to me describe that, I don't know if you consider that question to be super important, right? Is that the kind of thing that you would want to have a big fight about? Maybe so, maybe not. I'm, but I'm telling you, back in the day, people were really fighting about that. And there was no agree to disagree, okay? Um, the, so the Nicene Creed was written in part to try to end a debate and to define who is right and who is wrong. And then the creed serves this desire that people have always had, the desire for orthodoxy. People want to know that their belief is correct. There is no question <laughs> that belief is very important to being a Christian. It's hard to envision faith without belief. In the book of Romans, for example, the Apostle Paul writes, If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Christians believe. It's essential. But friends, <laughs> it is wrong to place all of our trust in correct belief. It's wrong for a variety of reasons. First of all, because human beings get things wrong. I know that none of us wants to believe that we could be believing something that was wrong, right? Because I believe with all my heart. And the truth is, you can believe with all your heart and be wrong, right? But that's not even the only conundrum. You might be one of a gazillion people who don't actually know what you believe, or you may not be able to believe things that you think that you're supposed to believe, right? I've had many people say to me, Rob, I want to believe this. I can't. Okay, so orthodoxy, it has some limits. One of the biggest challenges to orthodoxy actually comes from the Bible itself. Because in many passages, Jesus seems to really uh, ignore <laughs> the importance of belief and believing the right things. Um, for example, there's a story in the Gospel of Luke in which someone approaches Jesus and says, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, 
there's a lot of preachers today who, if that question ever comes up, they've got the answer for you. They, to inherit eternal life, you need to believe in Jesus, right? So th- if that is actually the answer to the question, then you would expect Jesus to just say that. But instead, when this guy comes up to Jesus and he says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says to him, well, you know, you know the commandments, right? Do not murder, do not steal, uh, do not bear false witness, all that stuff. And the guy says, yeah, 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 I, I do all that. Definitely, I, I know all that, I do all that. And Jesus says, great, now just sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor. <laughs> Which was not what the man wanted to hear. <laughs> but for our purposes here, I'll just point out that like, Jesus doesn't say anything in that moment about believing the right thing things, right? Or in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus uh, talks about one day the Son of Man is going to come and he's going to judge the nations of the world. And he, when he comes, the Son of Man is going to separate all the people of the world like he's separating the sheep from the goats. And the sheep are going to be the people that he's really, really pleased with. And he is going to celebrate and embrace these sheep because they are the people who fed the hungry and clothed the, na- the naked and welcomed strangers and visited those who were in prison. This is called the judgment of the nations. And in this foretelling, Jesus does not say anything about what these people believe. You know, do they believe the right things about God? Okay? These scriptures (laughs) illuminate not only the limits of orthodoxy, but they also lead us into that second big word that I wanted us to explore. Okay? So the first big word, orthodoxy, it means correct belief. Well, the second word is orthopraxy, and orthopraxy means correct action, okay? Correct deeds. Orthopraxy deals with how do you live, right? What do you actually do with your life? That is orthopraxy, okay? Now, for many people, Orthopraxy still applies chiefly to the religious life and to religious uh, actions, things like going to church, uh, giving money to the church, taking confession if you're a Catholic, keeping kosher if you're Jewish, or praying in a certain format five times a day if you're Muslim. Like, religious life is defined by certain behaviors, right? And so orthopraxy is often just a way of describing all the religious stuff that people do, right, as acting out their faith, okay? That is the correct behavior. Well, Jesus as well, he talked about right action. He talked about it all the time. Um, And sometimes it was connected to religious rituals, like when Jesus would tell somebody that he had just healed, that they need to go present themselves to the priest, and they're going to go through a a variety of steps in order to verify that they've been made clean. And that is a religious ritual practice. But a lot of times, the things that Jesus prescribed for people as right action didn't technically like necessarily have anything to do with organized religion that right living was about serving the poor it was about caring for the sick and sharing food with the hungry this is correct action this is orthopraxy 
And so people who want to follow Jesus' example or apply the wisdom of the gospel to their lives will engage in all sorts of virtuous activity, and it is orthopraxy for them, for you, right? If you if you give your time and you're going to teach someone or you're going to serve someone or you're going to help someone, you really truly may be doing it because you want to be faithful to God. And your faith is about doing the right thing, right? Okay, this makes a lot of sense to a lot of people. People who engage in social causes, they want to fight injustice I mean, even people who are vegan, you know, some people are vegan for health reasons, but a lot of people are vegan for moral reasons because a vegan diet is better for the planet. It reduces pollution and suffering in the world. So people are, you know, you know, you can look at any aspect of life and people are greatly concerned with morality, good deeds, right action, correct living, okay? Orthopraxy is essential to being Christian, right? It's, a, it's kind of a common sense thing, right? If, if you think of just some hypothetical person who is cruel and selfish and dishonest, you know, it's just kind of hard to think of that person as a Christian. Living right is important. It's centrally important to Christian identity. But just like with orthodoxy, it is tricky to define orthopraxy. Like it is kind of hard to make a list, all right, of the absolutely essential correct actions that you need to do in order to qualify as a Christian. Like, do you have to do this? Do you have to do that? You know, if you don't, you're not a Christian, what? Ugh. You know, like just just by like articulating it that way, it kind of just puts a bad taste in my mouth. I mean, I have some strong views on what a person should do and what they shouldn't do as a Christian. But I, I cannot tell you like, I can't, I, there is no Pastor Rob's official handbook on orthopraxy, okay? I, I can't give you that list. I can make recommendations. I think that you should go to church. I think that you should read the Bible. I think that you should give your money away. I think you should help strangers who have a flat tire. These things are good for you, they're good for them, good for the world. Highly recommend. But orthopraxy has limits, right? Because... The truth is, people make grave mistakes that they can't undo. People do the wrong thing, right? Sometimes people do the wrong thing even when they want to do the right thing. Sometimes we don't know what the right thing to do is. Sometimes we do harm without meaning to, right? Sometimes we do harm without even knowing the harm that we have caused. For example, your cell phone. Okay, there is an enormous amount of human suffering involved in the creation of your cell phone. Do you know about this? It's really bad. It's really, really serious. Okay, and you might not even know that your purchase of a Samsung Galaxy is contributing to some god-awful stuff that has happened in the world. And honestly, can you or I ever expect to know all the implications of every action 
that we take, right? If we could know everything, I wonder if we might just go insane trying to hold all of it in our minds. You know, you just the more you think about it, if you're, if all of your faith, if it all comes down to, and your sense of who you are in relationship to God, everything comes down to correct living, you realize how difficult it is to live correctly, right? To get things right with all of your choices and all of your actions. And in fact, one of the central teachings of Christianity is that we can't get it right. That nobody is perfect. Nobody can be perfect. We all screw up even when we really do know what is the right thing to do, okay? And that is why we need God's grace. Yeah, that grace <laughs> sees us through when we don't get things right. Correct action is essential to being Christian, but complete and perfect living is more than we are capable of. Orthodoxy. Orthopraxy. What makes a Christian a Christian? Well, in our scripture reading from the Gospel of Matthew today, we have this scenario where a person asks Jesus a question. And basically what he asks is, what is the most important thing? What is essential? Now, he doesn't say, Jesus, what makes a Christian a Christian? Because Christian was not an identity that people had at that time. But he says, what is the greatest commandment? So what is the most important instruction and expectation that God has for us in our faith heritage? This is his question. And the answer that Jesus gives him is not exactly about belief, per se, and it's, it's not about good deeds, per se, except that actually it is, right? It is about what you believe, and it is about what you do. Jesus names the source, okay? The source from which correct belief and correct action should arise. When asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus answered, to love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's a three-part love, or you could say it's a love in three directions. Love of God, love of neighbor, love of self. Some, sometimes people forget that last one. Okay, But to be a Christian is to put love first. That love is the most important thing. Okay, It comes first. It comes before questions about what we believe and what actions that we choose. 
Now, that's not to say that what you believe doesn't matter. It's not important. And it's incredibly important. It's not to say that what your, what your actions are don't matter. Of course, they matter. They matter tremendously. But Jesus says that love is the standard against which we should evaluate any beliefs or any deeds because love is the well from which truth and righteousness are drawn. Love is the ethic that allows us to discern what is correct, what is right. Okay? So when we baptize somebody, we bear witness to the love of God. When we share bread and cup in holy communion, we are acting out the love of Jesus. When we give of ourselves, when we give money or food or clothing so that somebody else can have what they need, when we care for someone who is sick or grieving when we help somebody to carry a heavy burden. We are saying when we do those things that love is true. We are saying that we are ready to receive the love that God has for us and we are ready to share that love with another person. And we are ready to lift our faces up to God and say, we love you too. Amen.